Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. God is good, isn't he? So what I want to do first is just kind of introduce what we're going to be doing over the next couple weeks. Starting tonight and the three following Sundays, we're going to begin a journey through a sermon series about the depths and the heights of Christianity, about the depths and the heights of walking with Jesus. And tonight we're going to begin that journey by looking at the depths of Christ's love and the depths of Christ's suffering for us. And what I want to do is, I, I don't know about you guys, but a lot of times for me, when I think about the cross and when I think about Jesus on it, I, I, I get that picture that you see posted everywhere of Jesus up on the cross. You know, he's got a couple scratches on him. He's got a six pack. You know, he, he looks, you know, pretty good for someone that's hanging on a cross. And um, he's wearing this diaper looking thing, you know. Um, and I think a lot of times when we think of Jesus in the cross, that's the picture we see. And what I want to do tonight is I want to pull the curtain back and I want to look at what Jesus actually went through the final days of his life. I want to start at the garden and I want to journey to the cross, but I want to take the curtain and pull it back and I want to look at the reality of what Jesus went through in his final hours, what he suffered. You see, because the, the scourging and the punishment that Jesus went through, it wasn't only meant to be something painful, although it was excruciating pain that he went through, but it was also something that was designed to be extremely humiliating. And I think a lot of times when we think about the cross, we, we, we don't get the full scope of what Jesus went through. So today I want to just take the journey starting at the garden and I want to journey to the cross and kind of walk with Jesus through everything that he went through. Before I do that, I just want to give some background. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, including man and woman. Adam and Eve walked with God in intimate relationship until they sinned against God by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and are cast out of the garden and sin enters the world, separating God from man and spreads like fire from Cain killing Abel to the days of Noah where God saw the wickedness of man so severe that he flooded the earth. So he flooded the earth. Sin continued to spread even within God's people Israel. So God sets up a sacrificial system for the forgiveness of their sins and gives them the Ten Commandments. He sends prophets and raises up kings to lead his people, but sin continues to reign in the lives of men. Until one night, a little over 2,000 years ago, when God himself breaks into human existence, Coming from heaven in the form of man, Jesus Christ, who grew up like us, was tempted like us, yet without sin, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cast out demons, and many other amazing things in his three-year ministry, was arrested, mocked, beaten, and being sinless himself, died for the sins of the world. So what I want to do now is just begin our journey through the final hours of Jesus' Jesus's death, begin our journey of the final days leading up to the cross. And where I want to start is the garden, is the garden of Gethsemane. And if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 22, 
verses 39 through 46. And how this is going to work is there's going to be some accounts that I actually go through Scripture and we're going to read the account out of Scripture. There are going to be other accounts where I just tell the story. But regardless of whether we're reading it in the text or I'm telling the story, I'm going to give you the reference of where we are. So if you want to go back and look at it, you can. Does that make sense? All right, awesome. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. All right. And it says this, and he came out and went. And as it was his custom to the Mount of Olives, the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat become like, it became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation." And what I want to do for a second is look at what's really going on here. So we see Jesus, he's going to a place that he went to quite often, right? This isn't the first time he's in the garden. This isn't the first time he's in the Mount of Olives. But the scripture tells us that this was a place that it was his custom to come to and pray. And what we see is as Jesus gets down and he prays, we see him in severe agony and suffering. Because see, as Jesus being God, he fully understands why he came and he fully understands what's coming. He understands the torture and the humiliation that lies ahead of him. As he looks forward to the cross and taking on the sins of humanity, he is in such agony that the scripture tells us that his sweat begins to fall like great drops of blood to the ground. And as he's praying, he asks his father in heaven, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, but not my will be done, yours be done. And as he gets up, he then goes to, to the disciples that he asked to pray, and he finds out that the people that are closest to him, the guys that have followed him for three years, have failed him in this moment. They're sleeping. They're sleeping where they should be praying and interceding and praying that they don't fall into temptation. They fall asleep. Jesus' closest friends in his deepest hour of need failed him. What happens next is even worse because another one of the 12, Judas, is on his way to the garden. If you'll follow me, to Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 56. And it says this, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, one of those closest to him, one that ate with him, drank with him, one that spent intimate time with him, with a great crowd, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. 
Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once, greeting and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up, laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this was taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So Jesus is in the garden praying with the, 12, uh, with the 11, right? Because one of them's missing. As he's praying, as he's talking to his disciples, Judas comes up. One that literally served with him in ministry. One that literally lived life with Jesus. Closely and intimately lived life with Jesus. And comes up and betrays Jesus with a kiss. So we have Jesus in the garden in agony and suffering. His friends have failed to care for him in the properly, proper way. And then one of his closest friends comes up and betrays him with a kiss. This is where we find Jesus. And then the soldiers that are with the high priests, that are with the Pharisees, that come with Judas, bound Jesus and arrested him. Bound Jesus and arrested him. So they take Jesus to these series of trials next. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to tell the account of what goes on in these trials. The first guy they take him before is Annas. In John chapter 18, verses 12 through 14 and 19 through 24. And they, he begins to question Jesus about his disciples, about all the things that he was teaching. And after, after he was done, Jesus responds and he says, well, I didn't speak anything in private. I spoke everything publicly. Why don't you ask the people what I said, what I taught, what my disciples were about? Why don't you ask the people? And as Jesus is speaking back, a soldier comes up and hits Jesus in the face. And he says, you don't talk to the high priest that way. And Jesus responds and he says, well, did I say something wrong? If I did, then continue what you're doing. But if I didn't, then why are you hitting me? So after this goes down, they then take Jesus to Ananias' son, I think it is, which is Caiaphas, and he's the high priest, the leader of the religious people at that time. And he goes before Caiaphas, and Caiaphas is hoping that people with false testimonies will come forward, that somehow they can trap Jesus and have enough evidence on the man that they can condemn him to death. 
And that's exactly what happens as they take him before Caiaphas. All of these people start coming forward and telling false testimonies about Jesus. But what they begin to realize is, is that person after person after person, false testimony after false testimony after false testimony, none of them agree with each other. None of them are, 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 are correlating. None of them are running true with each other. So Caiaphas goes ahead and he just asks Jesus right out, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus confirms that. And Jesus confirms that. And he says this, Mark 14, verses 53, 53 through 64. And it says this, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree, just like we were just talking about. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with, made with hands in three days, and I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men are testifying against you? But Christ, but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as, deserve, as deserving death. And it's shortly after this moment that the, that the story turns back to Peter. And the reason that is, is because it's shortly after this takes place that Peter denies Jesus for the third time. So, Peter, arguably probably one of the closest disciples to Jesus, one who walked closely with him, one that Jesus continually pulled aside to show him amazing things. He was up there on the, when the Mount of Transfiguration happened, where, where he got to, to see God in a unique way, see Jesus in a new, unique way. This Peter has now denied Jesus three times. People came up to him one after another and asked, aren't you one of the disciples? Aren't you with this man? And three times Peter says, no, I don't know the guy. So we see Jesus. We see his interaction in the garden. We see the betrayal of Judas. We see him go before these high priests, one trial after another, continually, being lied about and disrespected. We see him condemned to death. And then on top of that, we see one of his greatest followers deny him three times. And this is the state that we find Jesus in right now. But it doesn't end here because they take Jesus before another council, the Sanhedrin after this. And they question him again about being the Christ. They say, are you the Christ? 
Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, yes, I am again. So they condemn him to death. But before they make it to the next spot, Jesus is under the watch of the guard. And I want you to, to take a look at what happens. Luke chapter 22, verses 30, 63 through 65. And it says this. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So while he's under the care of the guards, the guards begin to beat Jesus. And as they're beating him, they blindfold him and they say, guess who's hitting you? Tell us who's hitting you. And they repeatedly hit him and hit him and hit him. And as they're doing this, they're not only asking him to prophesy, but they're mocking him and throwing insults at him. This is where we find Jesus. He was just pulled from the garden. He just went through all of these trials. And in the midst of everything, the guards that are watching him begin to beat him and mock him and play with him. The next place they take Jesus is before a guy named Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate was a governor in Rome, but essentially he was a king. There was only one actual king in Rome, but governors kind of served in that, in that place in certain areas. And so they, they take Jesus before Pontius Pilate. And the reason that they do that is because the week that all of this is taking a place is Passover week. And the Pharisees and the Jews can't kill Jesus themselves because then they couldn't partake in the Passover feast. So they take Jesus to someone who can do their dirty work. Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome. And what happens in John chapter 18, verses 33 through 38, Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 5, sorry. The Pharisees make many claims against Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Pilate asks Jesus flat out, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers Pilate. And Pilate, and the scripture tells us that Pilate finds no fault in Jesus. That upon all the slanders, all the accusations that the Pharisees are making, based on the question that he asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' answer, Pontius Pilate found no guilt in Jesus. So what Pilate does is he says, okay, well, I don't find any guilt in him. I don't want to have to deal with this. So we'll send him to Herod. Herod can make this decision because after all, Jesus is a Nazarene. He's from Nazareth. That's Herod's jurisdiction. So we'll send him there. So they tie up Jesus again and they walk Jesus to Herod. In Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 11, Herod begins to question Jesus. But this time, Jesus says nothing. You see, and at first, Herod was very excited because he had heard about Jesus, and he was hoping that he would get to see some miracles, some signs. But then he begins to question Jesus, and Jesus doesn't answer. 
And Herod and his soldiers begin to mock Jesus. It doesn't say exactly what they did, but it does tell us that the mocking went to the point where they began to clothe him in royal garments and purple clothes and began to mock him as king. Eventually, once Herod and his soldiers are done mocking and playing with Jesus, they send him back to Pilate because Herod also can't find any guilt in Jesus. So he sends him back to Pilate John chapter 18, verses 33 through 38. And it says this, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So it was custom at this time for the governor to release a prisoner to the people. So Pilate picks probably one of the worst, you know, to to choose from, a guy named Barabbas, who's a robber and a very violent man. And so what happens is, is because Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus and the conversations he's had with Jesus and the things that he's seen and the things that he's heard, he finds no guilt in Jesus. So he, he has an idea. Well, I'll put up this robber, this violent man, and let the people choose between the two. And as Pilate brings out Jesus and he brings out Barabbas and he says, well, which one do you want? Do you want the king of the Jews? And all the people begin to to yell out, release Barabbas, crucify him. Crucify him. Talking about Jesus. John chapter 19, verse 1, says this. After Pilate knew that he couldn't do anything, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And I want to stop there. Flogging was probably one of the most feared ways of torture in this day. In fact, it's said that flogging would even make kings surrender before battle happened if that was going to be the penalty. It's also said without, within Roman history that the cat of nine tails or the whip that they would use to scourge the individual was one of the most feared weapons in the Roman Empire. 
I want you to process that because this is what Jesus is about to be led to. And what flogging is, is they, they take you into the middle of the courtyard and this isn't a private event. This is a very public event. People are allowed to come and watch. And a lot of the times the high priests and the Pharisees would come and attend. And what they would do is they would bring Jesus into this courtyard. They would strip him completely naked. Completely naked for everyone to see. They would then go, they would bind his hands. Then they would tie his hands above his head, either on what they called a scourging post, which was about two foot tall. And they would get him on his knees and and put him there. Or, Or in some cases, they would actually use columns and he would be standing. But either way, Jesus is fixed in a way that he can't move. He can't move to the right or to the left to lighten the blow or or to hope that they miss. But he's tied with his whole back exposed in a way that that he can't get out. And what would then happen is is that they would take two Roman soldiers, and, and history tells us that Roman soldiers took pride in how good they were at scourging people. They took pride that they were the best at doing it. You see, the Persians used this kind of torture before also, but the Romans perfected it. And they took pride in the fact that they were so good at it. So then what would happen is that two Roman soldiers, one on the right and one on the left, would pick up this whip. And what this whip consisted of was a wooden handle that had five to seven, sometimes nine leather straps coming from it. And on the ends of these lather straps were woven bits of bone, bits of glass, wire, rock. Basically anything that they could think of that they could put on the end of this leather to make it do some serious damage when it makes contact with the body. So you'd have two soldiers, one on the right, one on the left, and they'd have these whips. And they would begin to alternate hitting Jesus. And as each blow lands on the body of Jesus, they'd start at the shoulder, they'd work down to the legs, all the way to the ankles. And as they begin to hit Jesus and hit Jesus, this bone and this glass would tear at the body. And we're not talking little cuts, we're talking deep incisions that generally ran about two to three inches long. And one... uh, One doctor that I was looking at as I was reviewing all this, he said that one incision made by this would generally take probably around 80 stitches, 70 to 80 stitches to close. I want you to process that because for the Jews, it was customary to scourge someone or to hit someone 39 times. But for the Romans, they didn't have a limit on how many times they could hit an individual. So as as they're hitting Jesus, it would rip at his at his flesh, it would make gashes, it would remove muscle and tendons, big chunks of his body would be removed. There's accounts through history of people being scourged so badly that you could see their spine because of the amount of meat that was removed through this process. And the goal was to get the person as close to death as you could during this beating. And they're just hitting him and hitting him 
And in many occasions, when the scourging was deemed to be so severe, after they were done with the backside, they would turn the individual over and start the process all over again from the shoulders to the feet with no way of lightening the blow, with no way of moving out of the way. He just had to sit there and take it. And we're not talking about little guys. We're talking about Roman soldiers. Big men, big fellas swinging the whips. Isaiah 52, verse 14, says this. As many were astonished at his appearance, was so marred beyond human semblance and his form was beyond that of of the children of mankind. This is Isaiah prophesying about the, the suffering that Jesus would endure, prophesying about the suffering that the Messiah would endure. And upon his prophecy, he says that the man will be, that this Jesus will be beaten so bad that you can't tell he's human. He bears no resemblance to mankind anymore. Jesus was disfigured because he loved us so much. Story doesn't end there. Jesus' suffering isn't over. Because what the Roman guards do next in John chapter 19, verses 2 through 3, is while they take Jesus back, they strip him down again. They put on a robe, a purple robe. They, they begin to form a crown of thorns. And we're not talking like rosebush thorns. We're talking like inch and a half, two inch long thorns. And they compose a crown and they put it on Jesus's head. And then they take turns hitting Jesus and mocking him throughout the whole time saying, hail, king of the Jews. They hit him. Hail, king of the Jews. A beaten, bloodied, and battered Jesus, dressed like a king, being mocked by the soldiers as they continue to beat him. To make things worse, after this, in John chapter 19, verses 4 through 7, John tells us, that Pilate brings Jesus out before the people again. And he again says, I I find no fault in this man. Are you sure this is the man you want to crucify? So we see Jesus in front of the crowd, beaten and battered, crown of thorns still on, or I guess at this point you could say in his head. And as the people look at Jesus, keep in mind, some of these people are the same people that a week before were praising him, Hosanna, Hosanna, as he came through Jerusalem. And as they look at Jesus, they shout at the top of their lungs, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So so Pilate surrenders Jesus to be crucified. 
And in John chapter 19, verse 17, it tells us that Jesus started off by carrying his own cross. It doesn't tell us how far he made it or how far he got, but he started off carrying his cross. And what was customary at that time is he wouldn't have carried the whole cross. The section that was vertical would have already been where it was supposed to be. But what they did was they made the prisoner or the individual carry the, the cross beam, which, which weighed probably roughly 100 pounds. And it's not like the wood on the pews. And what I mean by that is it's not smooth, well-sanded wood. It's rough. And not only is it rough, but it's likely back in those days because wood was so expensive that they reused the crossbars. So not only is he carrying a rough cross, but he's carrying a cross that is probably stained with the blood and the sweat from the people that bore it before him. And as Jesus is carrying the cross, each step he takes is jarring that crossbar, is rubbing that crossbar against his skin, his beaten and bloodied, battered skin with each step he takes. Not to mention the fact that if you think about it now, where Jesus is, think about all the walking he's already done. He was arrested at nighttime. He, was, he had no sleep. They took him to one trial, to another trial, to another trial, to Pilate, to Herod, to Pilate, to wherever they scourged him. And now he's carrying his own cross without sleep, and have already, having already walked a tremendous way. And the scripture tells us that Jesus couldn't carry his own cross all the way. That he just couldn't make it, so they, they recruited a guy named Simon to carry it for him. John chapter 19, verses 18 through 24. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote in an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, divided them in four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing at the cross of Jesus were his mother 
and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. In one of the gospel accounts, as they're preparing Jesus for the cross, they offer him a mixture of wine mixed with myrrh. And what I found out is that this mixture was something that they used to kind of deaden the pain or numb the senses. And for whatever reason, the scripture's not clear, but Jesus denied that upon smelling it. Some scholars say that it's because it, it had wine in it. Other scholars can't come up with other excuses. But one thing we know is this, that Jesus had the opportunity to lighten the load, to dull the pain, to deaden his senses, to go into the cross with some sense of comfort, and he chose not to. He had the opportunity to take less of the pain, less of the suffering for us, and he chose not to. He chose to endure it all, to take it all. Jesus was then stripped naked again. So this is the the third time that he's been naked in front of people. I don't know about you guys, but being naked in front of a lot of people is not on my list of things to do. It's extremely humiliating. So they stripped Jesus naked. And in Isaiah 50, verse 6, it tells us as Isaiah is prophesying again about the Messiah that they pull out his beard. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 says this, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So before they actually do any of the mounting Jesus to the cross, they strip him completely naked and it's Jewish custom to bring further humiliation to people because the beard back then meant something. It meant something spiritual. So what they would do to humiliate the individual being crucified is that they would begin to literally pull out his beard. And Isaiah prophesies, confirming that this happened to Jesus. And we know that because the book of Matthew confirms that everything that was prophesied about this moment was fulfilled. So here's Jesus, beaten, battered, stripped, beard pulled out, And then they begin to place him on the cross and begin to nail him to it. And generally what would happen is is that they would take four to five, depending on the amount of nails that were necessary to nail an individual to the cross. And we're talking four to five, seven inch nails. Because it it not only had to go through Jesus' appendages, but it had to go through the, the cross to hold him there. And what they would do is they would nail his hands and his feet. And what this actually means is, is they probably nailed his wrists because the hands aren't strong enough to support the weight of the body. So they would, they would go in between. You have two bones that run down your forearm. And they would try to shoot that nail right in between the two. And that would give the person enough support for when they had to push up to get air to support the body. 
But what also takes place during this time is that those nails just aren't penetrating his wrists and his feet, but they're penetrating the most sensitive nerves in the body. The most sensitive nerves of your body run to your hand and to your feet. So it's excruciating pain. And as they take and they drive the nail, he's probably, you know, shaking tremendously, agonizing pain. He's probably screaming out because of the pain that he's enduring. And they nail him to the cross. And after they get him fixed to the cross, what they do is they have a preset hole in the ground. And they begin to stand up the cross with the individual on it. And as they get it to a certain point, the bottom of the cross falls into the hole. And as it does that, his whole body would begin to jar on the cross. His bones and his wrists and in his feet would begin to rub up against those nails as he's bouncing up and down from, from the impact of the cross falling into the hole. And then if that's not bad enough, the entire time he's on the cross to get any kind of breath, he has to push up. Because, you see, one of the most prolific ways that people died on the cross was from asphyxiation. They couldn't breathe. And every time they needed to breathe, what they would have to do is push up on their wrists that are embedded in those nails, push down on their feet that have nails through them, and push up so that they extend their torso in a way to where they can get oxygen. So every time Jesus needed to speak... Every time Jesus needed to breathe, he had to push up. And his back would slide up and slide down and up and down on this rough, rugged cross. And keep in mind, he's already beaten and battered. Splinters going into his body now from just the simple task of breathing. That's not where the suffering or the torture of the cross ends, though. That's just the pain involved in the cross. That's not all of what the cross was sought to accomplish by those that hung people. You see, the cross was also an extremely humiliating thing. Like I said, they would hang the individual naked so that his private region is exposed to everybody. They would hang him in a public place where people can come by and mock him and insult him, which scripture tells us people did. If you are the son of God, come down from there. Not only that, but Mark Driscoll in his book, Death by Love says this, at this point during a crucifixion, the victim labored to breathe as their body went, went into shock. Now listen to this. Some victims would become so overwhelmed with pain that they would be incontinent. And what that means is that they would lose control of their body. And a pool of sweat, blood, urine, and feces would gather at the base of the cross. I don't know about you, but when I think about the cross, that isn't the image that I get. When I think about what Jesus endured, that's not the image that I get. 
The reality is, is that the cross and the entire process of suffering for Jesus was heinous. It was hideous. Not only the the suffering and the pain that he went through, but the amount of humiliation he endured throughout the whole process. John chapter 19, verse 38. 28 through 30. John chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John 15, verse 13 says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us that God demonstrates his love his overwhelming love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus traded heaven for earth. He traded glory for humiliation and ridicule. He traded paradise for suffering. And he came and he died a horrendous death because he loves you so much and desires to live in relationship with you so much, there was no links he wouldn't go and no price he wouldn't pay to spend eternity with the children that he loves. I want you to process that. Everything that we just read about, everything that we just looked at that Jesus endured from from the beating, from the rejection, from Peter denying him, from the scourging, from the beer being pulled out of his face, from him being stripped naked, from him being hung on a tree. He did it because he loves you so much. He loves us. The God of the universe, who owes us nothing, loves us so much that he endured it all to simply be able to say, I love you, come home. Come into daddy's arms. Come and experience my love and walk in relationship with me. I love you. When asked, how much do you love us? Jesus Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just come to you 
And God, we thank you so much that we serve a good, good father, one that deeply loves and deeply cares for his children. Lord, so much so that you paid a tremendous price that we could walk in relationship with you and experience that love. And Lord, I just come to you and I just ask, Lord, that, that this, this view of the cross, this view of your suffering, Lord, w- would sink in, would hit home. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us a deeper revelation of your love for us. And Lord, we just come to you, Lord, and we just ask as we're about to partake in communion, as we're about to to go to the Lord's table and celebrate what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do it, remembering everything you went through for us. We love you, Lord, and we just ask these things in your name. Amen. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.